Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you turn with me again in Luke chapter 1 and verse 48. Verses 48 and 49. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. Well, I read a news report this week about a church in North America that declared this Sunday to be Sabbath Sunday. And what they meant by that was they would take the Sunday off instead of worshiping the Lord, they would simply stay home and rest from that tireless work of worshiping God. Now, I think from our perspective and also the truth of the Bible informing us, that would grieve our hearts, surely. For what is a greater delight to any Christian than setting apart the Lord's day as holy and worshiping the Lord among his people in it. That is our greatest delight. And so we mention this story not in order to look down on these people, but rather to inquire that uh, what would be underlying this. Why would a church take even one Lord's Day and not seek to worship their God? Well, I put to you that it is reminiscent of a problem, a problem in our society, surely, but a problem that also can face true Christians. And that is this, that we lose sight of the worthiness of God, the worthiness of God to receive our praise and worship. You see, this is the great foundation of any life that is lived to the glory of God that is spent enjoying the presence of God. Any life that is truly happy and blessed, well, of this, it orders all of it. A sense and a recognition of the worthiness of God. The worthiness of God to receive worship is the reason why we exist. God created all things for his own glory. You and I and everyone, we exist for no other purpose than to bring glory unto God. And the true Christian surely is distinguished from anyone else by this. They are gripped with a sense that they live to magnify and glorify God. And so this portion of scripture, which we have been considering very carefully in recent uh, Sermons has been very important for us in this. We stand at the end of another year, a year in which the Lord has spared us, given us so many blessings. And surely if we reflect upon the past year at all, every one of us would have so many regrets at, 
how weakly and how inconsistently we have served our God. And so, as we stand at the precipice of one year and go into the next, what better way than to spend both the morning and the evening sermons reflecting upon these words from this uh, portion of Scripture that's sometimes called the uh, Magnificat, the Magnificat for the first word where Mary says, My soul doth magnify the Lord. Mary spoke these words by the leading of the Spirit upon her entering into the house of Elizabeth, you remember. She had just received word from the angel that she was to conceive baby Jesus within her by the great working of the Holy Spirit. And now, having that word of the angel confirmed from the mouth of Elizabeth, she now breaks forth in praise unto God. I hope that as we consider verses 49 and 50 in particular, that this would have the effect for you as well, that your heart would be stirred to bring praise and worship unto our God. Now, with the Lord's help, we will consider this theme, the God worthy of praise, the God worthy of praise. And I hope to show three things. First, his mighty deeds, God's mighty deeds. Second, his holy name. And third, his steadfast mercy. Well, in the first place, we consider God's mighty works. And these are particularly set forth here in verse 49. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things. Now, Mary's primary focus at this point is the miracle of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that the eternal Son of God should take to himself a true human nature, a human body and soul, and that the Son of God should become the Son of Man is one of the most remarkable and glorious events in all human history. Surely only comparable with the other works of salvation wrought by our Savior, Jesus. And this uh, specific teaching that we may profit from this verse is how incredibly mighty God is. She refers to him literally here as the mighty one or he that is mighty. And the Greek word there is dunatos, which describes uh, what is made possible because of the power or ability exerted by the subject. So what is especially set forth is God's ability by his power to make whatsoever he wills come to pass. And slightly different form of a related Greek word is found earlier on in this same chapter. Maybe you remember this uh, encounter that Mary has with the archangel Gabriel. Look at verse 
35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. Now, a very related Greek word, impossible, but there in the negative sense, adunitas, not possible. Nothing is impossible with God, for he is the mighty one, dunitas, possible. And so it is that a great dividing line exists here. The impossible and the possible, it, it all depends on what God wills, what God wills. Not that indeed God could will anything contrary to his good and pure character. Not indeed that there is any irrationality with God in his will. But where we speak of those things consistent with his holy nature and consistent with um, his own purposes, we say that nothing is impossible. These Things surely would conjure up all the different manifestations of God's awesome supernatural power and ability. The very fact that there is a world at all that God spoke into being in the space of six days shows that nothing is impossible with God. Every um, Everything about the human person, all the beauty and order that we see in the human eye, the human face, the human mind, these things testify that God's strength and power is awesome and glorious. But where we come to the great works of salvation, we pass an utterly different threshold. It is one thing for God to create this world, but another for him to restore it through the great working of his mercy and grace. It is one thing for a sinner through their own rebellion and that of our father Adam to become a slave of the devil and one who is worthy of the wrath of God. But for God to restore even one sinner unto a right relation with himself is the most glorious display of his power. It occurs through the sending of his son into the world. The only man, the only man who's never once sinned. This one who has all the power and authority of God, for he speaks and acts as the Son of God. This one who submits to the will of his Father in all things and comes to seek and to save the lost. This one who not only suffered and died to pay the penalty 
of God's wrath upon his people, but also rose again under the mighty power of the Holy Spirit, confirming that he is the Son of God. These things were necessary for our salvation. But what of what of the state of a sinner who has not yet benefited from this great work of salvation? That is indeed a sorrowful thing, isn't it? You hear of this Christ, how he came and suffered and died, but it is of no benefit to you. You lie in your sins. You lie in a state of condemnation. How is it that you can be saved, sinner? And you believe that you can save yourself? Do you believe that you could do or achieve anything that would be pleasing to God? Do you believe that you could make amends with God for your sins? That you can cancel the debt that he has against you? It is not so. You know, this, these Greek words, possible, impossible, they come up later on in Luke's gospel. Listen to this. It's right after that rich young ruler. He walks away from Christ, and Jesus imparts um, a lesson in Luke 18, in verse 25, to his disciples. He says, For it, e- it is easier for a camel to go through the, a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Disciples didn't take too kindly to this lesson, and they they heard it, and they said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. To bring a rich man or any sinner into a state where they benefit from the salvation of Christ takes a great and mighty work of God. To take someone who is in the power of sin and the devil, to translate them into Jesus Christ's kingdom of grace, it is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, how glorious it is when a sinner who is formerly in the clutches of the evil one is then redeemed unto the liberty of the sons of God. But it owes not to human might or human power, but by the Spirit of God. It is not of him who wills or runs, but of God who shows mercy. For God will have mercy on whom he will show mercy. This is the glorious thing that Mary could also sing about. We see there in verse um, 49, for he that is mighty hath done to me great things. Oh, can you testify that today, that God has done for you great things? Yes, he has done great things, you would not deny, but for you, that he sent his son for you, that he poured forth his spirit upon you, and he gave you, gave you faith, gave you repentance, gave you the benefits of Christ's mercy. Well, praise God for it. Wonder and astonishment 
that you should have been brought out of such a miserable condition unto the saints of light. And oh, let us recognize, let us recognize that it takes the almighty power of God to make a Christian. It is not something through human technique. It is not something through human ingenuity. It is a work of God to make a Christian. Now, listen to what John Calvin says. He says this. This may seem to be a small portion of faith, for no man, however wicked, openly denies God's claim to be almighty. Maybe we'd have to revise that and say, Mr. Calvin, actually, there are some people today who deny him. Well, we read on, but he who has the power of God firmly and thoroughly fixed in his heart will easily surmount the other obstacles which present themselves to faith. That's really why this is set forth, isn't it? That God is almighty. That God can do anything is set forth for the strengthening of your faith, Christian. You serve not a weak God, but an almighty God. You serve not a God of impossibilities, but of possibilities. Not even possibilities, certainties. For that which is impossible with man is possible with God. Is there one here? who despairs, despairs of the mercy of God towards you? Is there one here who feels abandoned and helpless? Oh, I would tell you today, dear sinner, that those things which are impossible for you are most possible with God. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 27. Behold, I am the Lord. The God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Do you come to this worship service weighed down with things that seem too hard, too burdensome, too crushing for your soul to weather under? Do you feel as though as you go into this next year, it is but a black cloud that will envelop you let it not be so for you dear one may it be that you would cast your burdens on the one whose strength is answerable to the trial the one who would speak blessing even in your despair where you would turn unto this God wholeheartedly and without reservation I tell you he is able he is able to bring light from darkness and life from death and blessing from curse. He is the one who performs mighty deeds. But here in Luke chapter 1, I would also speak to you of his holy name. Not only his mighty deeds, but his holy name. And where you look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 40, uh, 49, you see... This is also set forth in a glorious way. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. Holy. Oh, children, I wish I could explain to you just something of what that word 
holy means. It is a word that when describing God is really almost impossible to understand. But maybe this would be an easy word for you children to think about when you think about that word holy, special, special. Maybe in your homes, maybe you've got a lot of different toys. You've got this toy, you've got that toy, but maybe for you, for you, there's one toy that you love more than all the others. That is your special toy. And so maybe everything else could be lost, but that one, you know what? That would be the most sad if that would be lost. Special, different. And so we ascribe the word holy to different things. We talk about the Holy Bible because there's no book like the Bible. Read all the other different books that you can find in the library. Not one of them has the power and beauty and wisdom of this Bible. It's special. It's distinct. And we can speak of the people as saints, which literally means holy ones. The Christian is special. The Christian is distinct. The Christian lives differently than the non-Christian. But when we speak of God... As holy, you see, we speak about something that is surpassing our understanding. God's holiness is really all of his manifold perfections summed up in one word, holy, holy. This word, you see, it sums up a God who is utterly independent. Utterly self-sufficient, depending on nobody and nothing. It is a God for whom there is no darkness, no evil. God is light, the Apostle John says. It is a God who is utterly righteous, utterly just, utterly full and abounding in all wisdom, power, and strength. And you notice here, that Mary says in just that simple word packed with meaning, she says, holy is his name. The holy name of God. The fact that God has a name surely tells us important things. We, see, we know that he's personal. He relates to his creatures and his creatures relate to him. We know, of course, that he reveals himself. He speaks, and he would have us to know him. We know that he is a God who acts. He performs great and mighty deeds, whereby he may be known. In principle, among them are the great and mighty deeds he has done with his people throughout the many generations. Where I think about the holiness of God, I think about that scripture reading earlier on in this passage, right after that terrible episode where the children of Israel had built that golden calf. Can you imagine it, children? They'd been saved out of slavery from Egypt. And no sooner had they come to Mount Sinai to receive the law, but the children of Israel had built a golden calf. And are worshiping it, saying, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. So Moses comes down with the tablets of the law and breaks them. 
And God's wrath is kindled against this people. Moses pleads that they would be spared, that they would not be destroyed. And so God says, very well, I will not destroy them. But they are a stiff-necked people. They are a people that have disobeyed my commandments. I cannot go with them. I would have to consume them. And so he says, basically, you can continue to go. You can continue to go to the promised land. I'll send you an angel to help you. But I cannot go with you. Oh, you read about how Moses, he pleads with God and says, Oh, God, if you will not go with us, let us not go hence. Yes, you you can promise us the promised land. Yes, you can promise victory over our enemies. But it is you, God, that we yearn for. And he pleads that he would behold his glory. And And Moses is told by God, No, you cannot behold my glory, for no one can look upon me and live. But what I will do is I will put you in the cleft of a rock. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. And I will cover your face with my hand and you will behold me as it were from my back parts. And there he will declare all the name of God. And so it was that the angel of the Lord, the son of God himself, he descends on that mountain and the name of God is declared as he passes by Moses in Exodus 34 Verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, unto the third and fourth generation. Here are all these glorious attributes. His mercy, his goodness, his long-suffering, his wrath and his justice. And it's all the same God, the Almighty One, comes down and declares his name, declares his being. Well, this is why we have such a cold church Speaking broadly now, churches filled with cold and lukewarm professors of Christianity because they have not seen this sight of the great and holy God. The God whom they name and take upon their lips is not the true God. For they who take his name on their lips do not truly honor the one who is almighty, the one who is perfectly holy, the one who is utterly special and set apart. Isn't that something that we read from the Ten Commandments, that third commandment, which speaks, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Vain. And I love what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says where it tries to describe that. What does that mean? What does that mean where you would take the Lord's name in vain? Where you would treat it as a vain thing? 
This is what they say. What is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. When you think about the name of God, you see the, our Reformed fathers saw, you can't just take one thing about God, everything about God is then on the table. Everything of his character, everything of his perfections, everything of his revelation, everything of his works, it's all sacred, it's all holy, it's all set apart. And people who play games with God and trifle with God, people who do not live all out for God and glorify God, they do not know this God. They do not really treat his name with the weight and dignity that it deserves. What is forbidden in the third commandment, the catechism asks. The third commandment forbiddeth all profaning or abusing of anything where God maketh, whereby God maketh himself known. Surely we must humble ourselves, congregation, and recognize that we, like the people of Israel, are that stubborn and stiff-necked people. Any one of us, if we know ourselves at all, we do not treat God's name with the dignity and glory and worth that he deserves. We ought to be spending ourselves and draining ourselves with all of our strength to bring glory unto his name. We ought never to be murmuring and complaining about whatever lot or burden the Lord would place upon us, because his will is good. Whatever he appoints for his glory, that is what is pleasing to us. God is pleased to bring about his great purposes and to magnify his name. And for all the godly, whatever is pleasing to God is what is pleasing to them. Let us, congregation, hear these words and repent. Repent of playing games with God. Repent. Repent of living lives of lackluster, faithless Christianity. And to put our trust and give our obedience only to this holy God whose name is holy. But I would speak in the third place not only of his mighty acts and his holy name, but third, his steadfast mercy. And we see this in verse 50. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. Now, it is a striking thing that many people today, they try to understand their Bibles, and they try to understand a book like Luke, and they come to a verse like this, and they don't give any thought whatsoever to the historical background. How that phrase is one that comes up again and again in the Old Testament Bible. And it's not just half a Bible we have. We have a whole Bible, an Old Testament and New Testament. The two lips of God, the Old and the New Testament, they speak with one voice. And we, as the people of God, receive this as the one Word of God. Where do we find this kind of phrase before? Well, surely in the Ten Commandments, again, which we read every Lord's Day. 
Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So there you have it. God dealing with the generations. One father with their children and their children's children. He deals with families. He deals with generations. And he does so according to this wise principle. As a jealous God, he visits the iniquity upon the children of the fathers. And as a merciful God, he visits mercy unto thousands of generations that love him and keep his commandments. He works in generations. As one generation imitates the sins of their fathers and walks in the sins of their fathers, they receive the judgment of God. It passes down, you see. We know this, don't we? We, we are often walking in the same mistakes and sins of our fathers and grandparents. We may not even recognize it, but we inherit their uh, personalities. We inherit their tendencies. We imitate them and so imitate their sins. And this is how you have entire generations. You have God's judgment pass upon them. And the whole history of the world, isn't it? It's filled with that heartache, terror, idolatry, pain, suffering, darkness. Because one generation succeeds the other and all against the will of God. But that other principle, that other principle that God, yes, he remembers the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. But what also of the other? He remembers mercy to thousands of generations. That was one of the things that God had said as he passed by Moses there in the cleft of the rock, remembering mercy to thousands, to thousands of generations. Think of that. His mercy magnified as one generation after the other walks in the ways of God as fathers raise their sons and daughters to fear the Lord. As sons and daughters are brought unto a saving faith in the Lord. And so it is passing on to their children and their children's children. God operating through his glorious covenant along family lines. He speaks in this way in the, in the 103rd Psalm, verses 17 to 18. But, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. I think that it is precisely the fact that our nation does not understand this principle of the covenant of grace, that we can explain how unnatural and vile is the behavior of so many people in Canada. I heard one, uh, one person describe our contemporary society in this way. Ours is a society that dresses up animals like children while they slaughter their children like animals. What is that? What is it where people would pour into animals 
as though they were their own children, and that they would have, think no thought of killing their own children in the womb. What is that? It is a it is a society that has despaired of their future, a society that is living in a culture of death. So it would, would be. It would be that if you had no faith in God, that he can operate not only in your life, but that of your children, how could you have any hope in this dark world of bringing children into the world? When you just say, well, it's going to increase the pollution. It's going to, you know, create this problem. It's going to create more suffering and heartache if I bring children into the world. So it is many in our society, they treat children as a burden, as something that's not a blessing from God, but something that's going to hamper their lifestyle. It's going to be a drain on resources, going to limit their freedom. But for the one who understands God operating through future generations, we know that God can use our children and our children's children to bring light and hope and goodness into this dark world by means of his grace at work in us. But you notice how it's put here. It's put here, for his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. I want to read for you pastor I, I really respect by the name of John Calvin. And this is what he says about this verse. Well, God promises that he will be merciful to the children of the saints through all generations. This gives no support to the vain confidence of hypocrites. For falsely and groundlessly do they boast of God as their father, who are the spurious children of saints and have departed from their faith and godliness. This exception sets aside the falsehood and arrogance of those who, while they are destitute of faith, are puffed up with false pretenses to the favor of God. A universal covenant of salvation had been made by God with the posterity of Abraham. But as stones moistened by the rain do not become soft, so the promises of righteousness and salvation are prevented from reaching unbelievers through their own hardness of heart. Meanwhile, to maintain the truth and firmness of his promise, God has preserved a seed. A lot to talk about there. But let me just say this, that it is an appalling thing where even supposedly reformed churches would take pride in the name reformed, would take pride in the uh, confessions of the reformed church, in the worship of the reformed church, while also despising the God of the reformed faith, that they would despise that awesome principle that, yes, God's mercy is visited upon thousands of those who love him and fear his Fear him all the while being like the Pharisees who boasted of that Abraham was their father while despising the faith of Abraham. Let us never be that. Let us never be a church that is content with just the name, with just the doctrine, with just the tradition. If it is not a living reality in your life, it will serve not for your good on the great judgment day, but unto your condemnation. Only those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
can claim any kind of blessing from his covenant of salvation. And so we see here, beloved brothers and sisters, something of the God who is worthy of our praise, his mighty deeds, his holy name, and his steadfast mercy. As we consider upon these things on this last day of 2023, I would plead with you, do not allow these things to just pass you by. Surrender yourself utterly unto this God. It is the only way to live, living for his glory and praise. Amen.